Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this, the seventh in our summer series of biweekly lectures. Uh, it seems to me that many of you have phone in your pocket. It doesn't work down here. Don't worry about it. Seems to me that some of you own things like this. Some. And it seems to me that you're wondering, as I am, as I think we all are, how does the digital domain really fit into the study of books? It seems to me we're still figuring that out. It seems to me that we're still trying to understand more deeply how we could deploy the affordances of the digital to do book historical work, especially when not all the resources are available to us that we might encounter in the Beinecke Library or the Library of Congress or the BL or the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. What would it mean for us to figure out intellectually responsible ways to use the digital domain in service of book history. One of the most progressive thinkers in this regard is our speaker today, Ben Pauley, who has been much in demand throughout the United States in talking about this very subject. Some of you will know him because of his website, 18th Century Book Tracker. Others who are interested in the digital domain will know that he, along with Brian Geiger, who runs the ESTC project out at Riverside, won one of the inaugural Google Digital Humanities grants. And just for good measure, they won it again the second year. That seems like gluttony to me. <laughs> Ben Pauli has been thinking about what he likes to call the bibliography of surrogacy for a number of years. And I think his thinking is quite advanced. He is a member of the planning committee called Transforming the English Short Title Catalog into a 21st Century Research Tool. Ben received his PhD from Northwestern University and his dissertation was awarded the very prestigious Gene Hagstrom Prize for the most distinguished dissertation written over a two-year period in that very fine institution. Ben is currently Associate Professor of English at Eastern Connecticut State University. He is very much a citizen of the 18th century community very much a citizen of the digital world. His publications, his blogs, his talks around the nation are beginning to make people think differently about the affordances of the digital and how we might move forward. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Ben Pauley. After that exceedingly kind introduction, I scarcely have to give my actual paper. Uh, so thank you, Michael. It is 
Um, a real pleasure to be on, on this side of the lectern uh, for a rare book school lecture. Um, I will say I spent uh, today in analytical bibliography correcting from proofs and setting type. Uh, and in addition to having to sort of master all the small pieces of type, I had the added anxiety of remembering not to sort of scratch my nose and leave an enormous ink smear uh, across my face. And I think I succeeded, but if I didn't, please don't tell me. Uh, so uh, my talk this afternoon addresses some of the challenges and opportunities that come with our move into a digital environment for our study and our teaching of book history. Uh, my title, as you may well have guessed, turns on a play on the word remediate. For much of my time, I'll be using that word in its now familiar senses of translating into a new medium or passing through an additional layer of mediation. But I want to attend as well uh, to its original sense of providing a remedy. I'll speak for about 35 minutes, perhaps a hair less, so I hope that in our discussion we'll have time to both parse and entangle the various senses of that word. So I want to consider two principal sets of questions. First, what happens when the books whose history we want to explore are translated into a new medium? How does the landscape change when, in the course of their daily work, most scholars and students are now more likely to encounter a digital surrogate of an old book than they are to consult a physical copy in a library's special collections department. I'm going to apologize in advance for my frequent use of ungainly terms like physical book, material book, but it's a distinction that the subject sort of forces me to make. To what extent can we do book history with digital surrogates? What kinds of questions can we profitably pursue using surrogates? and what claims must we be wary of trying to make on that basis? So secondly, what kinds of opportunities begin to present themselves when we consider the prospect of doing book history in a new medium? What affordances do databases, web portals, application programming interfaces, linked data standards, and so on and so forth offer us that might help us do book history differently than when the medium of our histories and our history writing is paper? Here I'll be focusing on the Mellon Foundation-funded effort currently underway to implement a redesigned English short title catalog aimed at facilitating new kinds of inquiry in early modern and 18th century British studies. Uh, I was involved uh, in the planning, as, as uh, Michael mentioned, for the new ESTC along with David Vandermeulen, um, and I'm, I'm really excited about its potential for supporting new kinds of projects, including a couple I'm, I'm starting to work on myself, which I'll also glance at. Um, now, there are three acronyms I'm going to be using uh, kind of a lot, and, and those of you who study early modern or 18th century Britain will, will already know these, but I didn't want to assume that everybody studied that. So um, ESTC is the English Short Title Catalog, which uh, we've mentioned. It's the, uh, the most comprehensive bibliography and union catalog available for pre-1800 uh, printed books and newspapers in the English-speaking world about 500,000 bibliographic records and 4 million or so library holdings worldwide, but that's mostly North America and uh, the British Isles. Um, EBO and ECHO are uh, respectively early English books online and 18th century collections online, and these are both um, page image databases that also provide at least partially searchable full text uh, for a large fraction, not everything, but a large fraction of the works that are in the ESTC. 
So this is, on the one hand, the major bibliography and two of the biggest uh, big databases of page images and, and text uh, for this period. Now, um, probably no one who would be inclined to spend their Monday afternoon at a rare book school lecture needs to be reminded of how far the digital surrogates of books at sites like Ebo, Echo, Google Books, the Internet Archive are from being true representations of the physical books from which they're derived. Most of the digital facsimiles we use are actually pretty low fidelity reproductions at best. And this is a point which John Overholt of the Houghton Library illustrated last year in a tweet offering the one JPEG answer to, why would you buy that book if it's already on Ebo? Uh, and anyone who's used digital surrogates has probably uh, run across a page that's partly or even entirely illegible, either due to poor scanning, you can go to the Art of Google Books, Tumble blog to see scary fingers and that sort of thing, um, or problems in the source text like foxing or, or, or over-inking. Um, so there might be, uh, just parenthetically, there might be some good news on this front uh, because as part of their project to uh, perform improved optical character recognition on the page images of, of Echo, uh, the Early Modern OCR project at Texas A&M is actually, among other things, compiling a database of illegible pages. Um, so we can hope that perhaps uh, somebody will find time to sort of track these pages down, the, the totally unreadable pages, track them down and, and rescan them. I'm not promising anything on their behalf, but, you know, we can hope. Um, so some of the infidelities of our digital surrogates are less immediately obvious. As Diana Kitchick has noted of Ebo, and James May has made similar points about Echo, inconsistent cropping and skewing of pages, whether it was during the initial microfilming or during subsequent digitization of those microfilms, can sometimes silently obscure or distort our sense of a book's appearance and thus mislead us about its format or its general character. Uh, Kitchick suggests that these surrogates place a premium on reproducing early English texts, but in the process they vitiate their usefulness as documents for the study of early English books. And really, uh, as these images from the blog of Sarah Werner, who's the digital media strategist at the Folger Shakespeare Library, illustrate, um, there are times when black and white scans can even mislead us about the state of the text. So it's clearly a pasted-in errata slip in the top photograph appears in that screen grab from Ebo to have been printed uh, on the page. And, and incidentally, for, for a good treatment of many of the issues I'm talking about, especially in the first part of my talk, um, you could check out Sarah's uh, article in the Journal of Digital Humanities from a couple of years ago. Um, if anybody wants these links later, I'm happy to provide them. So clearly, we could do with a better class of digital surrogate. Um, I think we can derive some hope from the fact that in their own digitization operations, many libraries have begun providing scans of quite high quality. Uh, here's a 1598 printing of Marlowe's Hero and Leander at the Folger, for instance. You can see in this, in this first screen grab that we see the full opening, so we have a good sense of the, of the proportions of the pages, and the quality of the photograph is, is really uh, quite good. We can make out, uh, as I'm zoomed in a little, the W in Worshipful. Uh, this isn't my period, but it looks to me as though it's made up of two separate sorts, while the W in Walsingham does not. Um, I, I hesitate to venture too much of an interpretation so many years outside of my field. But I'm not even zoomed in all the way. So you know we can get pretty good information from something like this. 
Uh, now, obviously, we would expect high standards from the Folger, right? But um, even the scans at the Internet Archive are already superior to what we see in Ebo and Echo, and color scans have begun to turn up in Google's results as well. Um, I don't have time, but I could speculate about why this is. I don't know if you can make it out at this distance, but if you're viewing this on your own computer, you, you can actually see the wire lines in the paper uh, in, in this scan. So it's a lot better than what we've become accustomed to. Um, so it, I mean, it's not as good as what they're doing at Folger, but it's pretty good. Uh, and there are some genuinely intriguing developments underway in imaging that could lead us to digital surrogates that actually provide us with information that we couldn't get from examining a material book ourselves. Here I've pulled some stills from a brief video by Cultural Heritage Imaging illustrating what can be done with an image of a manuscript photographed using a process known as reflectance transformation imaging. This is a process in which they, they create a composite image uh, out of scores of images that are taken under raking light from every angle. Um, and so you can reconstruct the thing and, and zoom around and see it uh, under different angles of light. Um, and here they've, they've also done things. They've removed the color information and left behind just the topography of the vellum. Um, so we can see details of how the ink rests on the page. And, and in those areas I've circled in red, you can see letters that have been scraped away and sort of recovered. So uh, we're getting not just an image of the manuscript of very high quality, as we see at upper left, we're also getting to see this manuscript in ways we couldn't see it with our own eyes if we had it in front of us. Now, um, these new kinds of surrogates are probably a ways off. Uh, and in the meantime, there's still a certain truth in Diana Kitchik's lament that tools like Ebo, and these are her words, place the remediated microfilm image at the center of early English textual studies for years to come at least until there is a renewed drive to digitize extant print copies directly using state-of-the-art technology. As some of the images I've, I've shown suggest, I think we're already seeing something of that renewed drive to digitize. Uh, Kitchik herself notes such advances, but I don't think it was clear in 2007 that they would begin to bear so much fruit so fast. It's in 2007 that Google Books really starts to take off, and I, I think that changes the way that everybody was looking at digitization. Um, if nothing else, I mean, it, it encouraged libraries to say, well, we can do better than that. Right? And, uh, and so in 2007, I don't think things looked the way they do now. Um, but I don't think we have to wait for the perfect surrogate uh, to appear. I mean, it, it's worth remembering that in Kitchik's phrase, state-of-the-art technology is by definition always a moving target. There's a certain irony, it seems to me, in the fact that having done such a good job of drawing attention to the ways that a remediated microfilm image is actually a new artifact whose mediating function we ignore at our peril, Kitchik's uh, essay then closes with a kind of utopian projection of a true early English digital codex to be facilitated by new technology that's just around the corner. Uh, it is just a matter of years, she says, citing a book published four years prior, before computing power is available to realize high-definition spaces of illusion. Where's my jetpack? Right. Now, I'll say, I am just as prone to this impulse as anybody. I mean, I'm really looking forward to the day when we get surrogates that allow us to see the paper in ways we can't see now. 
But that forward-looking enthusiasm is tempered a bit for me when I see things like these tweets out of Oxford last week reporting on a presentation by David Howell, who's uh, the head of conservation research at the Bodleian. He reported that um, two days of hyperspectral imaging of the sort that yielded so many great insights about the Archimedes palimpsest uh, created 140 terabytes of data in two days. Um, and he also suggested, uh, apparently, I'm, I'm relying on Twitter, so I, I trust Pip Wilcox, but you know, take that for what it's worth. He also suggested that of the 13 million items in the Bodleian's collection, maybe 10,000 would benefit from that kind of, of analysis. So it may not be that every single book warrants this kind of uh, extravagant high-tech treatment. Um, so I want to qualify somewhat Diana Kitchik's rather glum assessment of EBO and by extension other digital surrogates uh, as a resource for book history. I think I can say goodbye to Pitt now. Um, the remediated microfilm images that make up EBO and ECHO are far from perfect surrogates, certainly. Um, but they can nevertheless support legitimate book historical work provided we don't try to do with them more than they can really support. In a class I taught last semester, for instance, the students read in a chapter from Gillian Wright's recent Producing Women's Poetry, 1600 to 1730, that the three issues of Anne Finch's 1713 miscellany poems, which explicitly attribute the volume to the Countess of Winchelsea, are likely to have been belated attempts on the part of the publisher to stir up interest in a slow-selling volume. Now, the ESTC has six different entries for Winchelsea's miscellany poems, five from 1713, one from the following year. Scans of four of those are available in Echo, and a fifth is available at Google Books. Um, we can tell, even from the small versions of the title pages that I have on this slide here, that these scans probably aren't commensurable with one another. I mean, you couldn't simply overlay them on top of each other and, and compare them directly. They're, they're just not... Uh, commensurable. But when we start looking at the text themselves with an eye towards the location of the signatures relative to the text, which is one thing that will remain stable even if the proportions of the pages aren't entirely reliable in the scans, these all look like the same edition, the same setting of type. Um, so I'll just put a line there. And you'll see, I mean, it, it's not perfect. Some stretch a little bit, I think, because of the, the curvature of the page during scanning. But, you know, keep your eye at the, on the signature down there. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty close. Um, the fact, so I, I wouldn't swear that these are all sheets from the same impression, um, but the fact that all of them have the same list of errata at the end of the table of contents, and the fact that none of those has been corrected in any copy, seems like further evidence that, that maybe that's what we're looking at here. Um, and, additionally, the fact that a scan of a copy at the English Faculty Library at Oxford contains two title pages, um, one which uh, attributes the book to the Honorable Anne Countess of Winchelsea and the other simply to a lady, seems like further evidence to me. I mean, I, I suspect, though I can't be entirely sure, of course, but I suspect that that shadow along the left here is the stub that the, the new title page was, was pasted onto. It just doesn't look the way gutter lines usually look in these kinds of scans. It, it's in the wrong place. It doesn't run the full height of the page. So though the evidence from these surrogates is equivocal, it's enough to make me think that Wright's assessment of the marketing logic 
behind the title pages is probably right. Indeed, uh, that she would have been justified in framing her point still more forcefully if she had wanted to. I think she could have gotten away with it. Now, let me be clear. I am not suggesting that anybody should try to produce a Winchelsea bibliography on the basis of these surrogates. And I'm not suggesting that the availability of digital surrogates means we don't have to look at material books anymore. In fact, I'm going to try to suggest precisely the opposite. Uh, what I am saying is that we can bring at least some of the techniques of bibliographical analysis to bear, even on relatively crummy digital surrogates, like the ones we, we have today, and that doing so can produce helpful book historical insights, provided, again, provided we're aware of the limitations of the surrogates we're looking at. And my perspective on this matter, uh, I'll freely say, is shaped by my, uh, my day job as an English professor. But it seems to me that having such large collections of digital surrogates available makes it possible, in fact, makes it necessary to bring questions of book history to the center of our attention. Right? I mean, now, students and scholars can use these digitized sources to ask fascinating questions about intellectual and cultural history. What can we learn from cookbooks? I had, a, I had a student look at 18th century cookbooks. What did contemporary manuals of midwifery have to say? But as Stephen Tabor and Ian Gadd have noted, the ease of using such digital resources to ask those kinds of questions may actually prevent many users uh, from ever thinking about the sorts of bibliographical and book historical questions that really need to go along with them. Uh, as a teacher, I want to su subject these digital surrogates to whatever bibliographical scrutiny they can bear, if only so that I can get across to my students that the texts they're reading in class were books that came into the world in particular ways, and that we need to consider their history as books when we're thinking about their place in the world in, in which they move. So to my mind, the most serious drawback of resources like Ebo and Echo for book history lies not in the quality of the surrogates that they, they provide, but rather in the illusion of comprehensiveness that they create. Now, I'm leaving entirely to one side for tonight my other major concern about these databases, which is that they're proprietary and massively expensive resources that are beyond the reach of most of the institutions that serve most of the students in this country, but um, that's not strictly a book historical problem. So <clears throat> it's easy to forget, so I'll... I'll try and get my blood back down on that and <laughs> carry on with the talk. So it's easy to forget, but not everything is in Ebo and Echo. So Echo and Echo 2, for instance, provide about 180,000 editions. I really wince to use that word so loosely in this room of all rooms, but let's just go with that. About 180,000 editions. Um, and that is more than anybody could reasonably expect to read, of course, but it's still... Uh, less than 60% of the roughly 330,000 uh, 18th century entries there are in the ESTC. And what's more, these databases generally provide just a single witness of each edition, uh, so they mask the variability of early print. Uh, as Ian Gadd puts it, we have the problem where a copy becomes the copy, as far as most users are concerned. Now, this concern is addressed in some measure by the proliferation of surrogates elsewhere. Having more copies to compare against Ebo and Echo from sources like Google Books, the Internet Archive, HathiTrust, and the initiatives of all these libraries around the world brings us closer to the promise of a virtual collection of greater scope than we could find at any one library. And so I say the more surrogates, the better. Right? Bring them on. Um, of course, we need a guide to what's out there. 
and that's where the English Short Title Catalog comes in. One of the recommendations made by the Planning Committee for redesigning the ESTC was that the ESTC should extend uh, its writ as a union catalog to include the listing of digital surrogates as well as the listing of library holdings. Uh, the ESTC has already begun providing links to EBO and ECHO, some to Google Books, some to HathiTrust, some to individual libraries. I've seen a couple from the University of Illinois, for example. And that facility is designed to grow in the new ESTC and uh, we hope to become more granular at the same time so that uh, we want it to be possible to connect the digital surrogate to the record for the physical holding from which the surrogate was made. If you spend enough, no, sorry, not enough time. If you spend far too much time using Google Books the way I do, um, you can sometimes find multiple scans of the same book, right? I mean, so the, it, they just, I don't know why, but they just scan the same book twice. And that's confusing, so we, we need to sort that out. Um, so, uh, on the one hand, this is going to allow the ESTC to become a bibliographically orderly hub for discovering digital surrogates of in-scope work. And having the ESTC as a virtual clearinghouse for discovering what's been scanned, I, I hope, may also help libraries strategize their own digitization efforts. If you're a librarian, you can look at your collection, see what hasn't been scanned yet, and move it up the, the list of priorities. Right? Or, we hope, librarians and bibliographers could work together to identify those editions that would benefit the most from having lots and lots of witnesses and not worry about redundancy. Right? But just scan it. The more the better of this particular edition. So, um, excuse me, I'm going to use my Rare Book School um, water bottle, which you can get at the Notion Shop on Friday. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I get a finder's fee on every one of those. Um, Thus far, I've been focusing on how we might adapt to the remediation of books. So it's here that I want to turn to my second topic, the opportunities for remediating book history. So the reason that links to digital surrogates belong in the ESTC, rather than my 18th century book tracker site, is that the ESTC has a whale of a lot of metadata. Right? That's where the metadata are, so that's where the links ought to be. Our digital surrogates of books don't have to bear the entire weight of remediating book history when we start thinking about our catalogs and bibliographies as themselves being digital resources that can grow and expand to reflect new findings. And it's this premise that motivated the ESTC Planning Committee's two other recommendations. First, that the ESTC invite user curation and enrichment of information in the database. And second, that the ESTC make its data more amenable to reuse by new kinds of digital projects. Uh, in a 2009 article, James Asher, a sometime rare book school uh, hero, argued that, uh, that special collections materials call out particularly for progressive description. Though the exigencies of cataloging can create an understandable pragmatic drive to handle at once and arrive at a good enough description to enable basic discovery in the catalog, Asher notes, we learn new things about old books the more they're handled and scrutinized. So Asher urges us to think of the initial cataloging description as a starting point, but to be open to the possibility of continuous revision and enrichment of the record, to move along a continuum from what he calls basic cataloging, which emphasizes bibliographic identification and control, on towards full bibliographical description. 
And this is an approach to cataloging and to bibliographical scholarship, Asher notes, that becomes practicable when the medium for our description of books is digital rather than paper. So for Falconer Maiden and his successors, Asher says, physicality became a major obstacle, those are his words, to the revision of descriptions. Pages had to be erased and leaves had to be added to codices or cards had to be replaced. With computers, Asher suggests, information is fungible with the ease of a mouse click and keyboard stroke, catalog records can be automatically updated, databases can be linked. Now the ESTC is, and it's always been, a community-driven enterprise. Librarians from around the world have continually helped to, to enlarge and improve the file. But the ESTC right now faces a huge backlog of corrections and submissions from librarians and users. I, I don't think I, I don't think they would mind my saying they, they literally have hundreds of thousands of, of holdings to match. Um, and this has happened even as its staff has shrunk to the smallest levels ever. I mean, if you ever meet these people at a conference, you should just go give them a hug. I mean, the work they're doing is heroic. Um, the ESTC needs new processes for receiving and incorporating corrections and new information. And so the planning committee proposed a new kind of portal that would allow users of the ESTC to supply corrections directly. So you don't have to just send off an email. You can go and you can help revise the file. Now, this point has been a source of anxiety for some people. So I want to hasten to clarify, the ESTC isn't going to be turned into a sort of wide-open wiki free-for-all. Um, what we might call the canonical ESTC, that core bibliographic data, that's going to remain closely guarded, and it won't be subject to revision without thorough vetting. And even then, those changes uh, to that data will be left in the hands of ESTC staff. So. Everybody take a deep breath. You don't need to worry about rogue Oxfordians vandalizing all the Shakespeare records. Uh, it was clear, though, that the ESTC was being held back by the fact that it didn't have any good way to accept the information that users were eager to supply. The ESTC's users wanted the ESTC to be the place where scholars could help in the process of what Asher calls progressing to bibliography. And it was equally clear that the ESTC's users were eager to make use of ESTC data in ways that its, exi its existing systems couldn't readily support. So supporting both these imperatives, the need for user curation and the desire to present ESTC data in ways that could support new kinds of digital inquiry required a remediation of the ESTC itself. Now, it may sound strange, for those of you who know the ESTC, it may sound strange to talk about this upcoming redesigned ESTC as a new digital resource, because the ESTC has always been digital. Unlike the short title catalogs of Pollard and Redgrave and of Wing, which it resembles, the 18th century short title catalog, the initial name of the project, uh, wasn't necessarily targeted for print publication. I learned from Stephen Tabor yesterday, I, I didn't know this, at least early on, they were keeping open the possibility of presenting it in print, um, but it never happened. Right? They, they, they chose to use uh, the, the then still relatively new machine-readable cataloging specification, Mark, librarians will know this, uh, to enable electronic cataloging and the sharing of records among libraries. But the redesign of the ESTC that, that's in progress really does represent a profound rethinking of the data model for the catalog that's going to open up new possibilities for research. Um, so Mark is, at bottom, a set of rules for creating a plain text file 
that a computer can read, interpret, and display in ways that make sense to a human user. It's a format that predates the electronic catalog, let alone the World Wide Web. Indeed, it was initially used uh, for entering and exchanging information that would ultimately be printed out to catalog cards. Um, I worked really long and hard on that animation, so thank you. So, everything in a mark record is really just a string of text, right? Um, numbers, place names, people's names, and so on are all the same kind of data, they're text data. And that's fine when the aim is to present nicely formatted records, uh, one at a time to a user sitting at a terminal, but it's less helpful when you want to start looking for patterns in large collections of bibliographic metadata. So as part of its redesign, the ESTC's data is going to be abstracted from the particularities of MARC and moved from a flat text file into a relational database. So numbers and dates that are currently just strings of text will become numbers that can be calculated, dates that can be placed on a calendar or timeline. Place names can have geographic data attached to them, allowing them to be mapped. Uh, now, as it happens, I have my own copy of the ESTC that I've converted from MARC to a MySQL database, uh, and I've begun playing with some of these questions. I wouldn't call it more than playing at this point, um, but you know, I was able to take uh, publication years and the birth and death years attached to authors' names and turn those into numbers that can be calculated. And I'll tell you that looking at a simple question like, how old were authors when their works were published, that is, subtracting their birth year from the publication year, really simple math that even an English prof can do, it made a few remarkable things uh, come into view, like authors who published their works 70 years before they were born. Um, authors who lived to the age of 150 and beyond. Uh, John Nichol, who was the author of The Advantage of Great Britain Considered in the Tobacco Trade, actually isn't slated to die until 7143. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets. So, obviously, these are errors in the file of a kind that's really easy to make. And, you know, let he or she who's never transposed two characters cast the first stone here. Um, interestingly, though, they're also errors of a kind that is almost impossible to find if you're doing something at all sensible, like searching a catalog by author's name or title, instead of saying, who are the oldest and youngest authors listed in the STC? I mean, what a stupid thing to do. And yet, this is how I spend my time. Um, so in, in one case, I will say that a result I thought was clearly an error uh, turned out to be genuine. Surely one of the youngest authors recorded in the STC must be 11-year-old Hannah Hill, who's the author of A Legacy for Children, which was published posthumously in about 1714. And so one has to wonder how many other such poignant cases are just waiting in the catalog for us to find them. I'm sure that we could come up with lots of different questions to explore. Oh, damn, I missed the animation. Um, I'm sure we could come up with lots of different questions to explore if age were a readily exposed variable. Uh, in any given year, what percentage of texts published were by living versus dead authors? Uh, when plague broke out in Marseille in the 1720s, were any of the authors who published books that were at least identifiably on plague in England, were they actually old enough to remember the Great Plague of 1665 themselves? 
I now know that one, actually. And the answer is possibly, but only if your name was Daniel Defoe. Uh, these are questions that you can't directly ask of the current ESTC, but in the future, perhaps you will. So the ESTC will also be making a decisive move to an entity relation model for its data. That is, entities, people, places, works, additions, and so on, will stand in relation to other entities. So a person can be the author of a work that is manifested in multiple editions, each of which might have multiple variant states. Sorry, I know I missed issue and impression. My analytical bibliography friends are judging me right now. Um, but a person might also be a printer of an edition published by one person and sold by four others. And all of these various entities, people, works, and so on, will have unique identifiers so that they can be linked to reliably and cross-referenced with other sources on the web. Now, I should just stress, this little image is, a, is only one portion of, a, of an early sketch of the data model. So that's not it. Right? There's, there's more. Um, I've done some work along these lines with a subset of ESTC data as part of my work on a Defoe attributions database for the Defoe Society. And that site is still under de development, but I think it can provide a glimpse of the kinds of things that a new ESTC could conceivably do. Um, so here's part of a listing of ESTC records for the first Robinson Crusoe novel, with those uh, records also placed on a timeline. And you know, with further research, since it's a database that can be updated, we can uh, improve the granularity of those publication dates down to the month or even the day. We could start with the Boyer ledgers for some of it. We could go through looking at advertisements and, and, and try to pin some of these things down. Um, here are the various manifestations of that novel placed on a map according to their place of publication. It was actually only in looking, looking at these records in this way uh, that I came to realize um, that there were two late 18th century abridgments published by a printer who was active in the town where my university is located. So now I know what I'm going to be working on for the next 10 years. Uh, but I'm also interested in tracing relationships among publishing personnel, so something that might shed light on the ways we think about, for example, Francis Noble's claims to having insider knowledge that led him to identify Daniel Defoe as the author of Roxana and Mal Flanders. These are not solid attributions. Francis Noble was an incredibly sketchy guy. Um, and th th so maybe we could learn something about Francis Noble by playing a sort of six degrees of Francis Noble to try and link him back. This is a question that Robert Griffin considered in a sketch-like way uh, in a brief piece in Philological Quarterly a few years ago. But if we treat publishing personnel as entities in the database, each with his or her own unique identifier, we can start connecting the entries for those personnel to the records for each publication with which they were involved. And so that makes it possible, for example, to generate a list of all of the publications that a particular uh, printer or, or member of the trades was involved in. Like, Arthur Bettisworth, and, and it, it goes on. I just I couldn't get the whole screen in there. Um, we could generate from there a list of all the other members of the book trade, book trades with whom that person worked on various editions. So Bettisworth worked with Samuel Bird on two different titles, with William Borum on one, and so on and so forth. Um, with that kind of information, we can begin to chart the relationships between authors and their publishers and the relationships among members of the book trades. Who worked with whom, when, in what genres. 
we could perhaps start building visualizations like this one, which draws on imprint information from about 2,000 ESTC records to show the people with whom Elizabeth Nutt partnered and the people with whom her partners partnered. So I, I would note uh, that th this was the first time I had used this tool and I'm still working out all its fiddly parameters. So this is a very pretty picture, but not a great data visualization. Um, somebody said, wow, I think I saw that in a, the, the, the parking lot of Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> you know, maybe you did. Um, it also doesn't include that everything that not worked on. It's just that subset that's associated with Defoe. So you, you shouldn't draw any conclusions from this yet. But I think it's suggestive, for example, that the very strong relationship between Elizabeth Nutt over there on the right and Ann Dodd over here on the left, it's, it's one of the two strongest correlations in this subset. And I don't think that's just noise. I, I think that's something that could be borne out by, by further real research. So transforming the ESTC's data in this way will make it easier for it to be shared, uh, exchanged, and reused in other projects, of which I'll give just one quick example. Uh, Ian Gadd and, and Giles Bergel have conceived a project, which I'm pleased to have signed on to, that will attempt to link information on claims of copy ownership in the stationer's company register to information on members of the London Book Trade from Michael, Lund uh, from Michael Treadwell's London Book Trades database on the one hand, and publication information from the ESTC on the other, in order to tease out patterns of copyright trade practice on the eve of the act of AM. So what did copyright look like as a collection of trade practices before it was formalized through statute? Now, this is a project that's going to depend on a number of remediations. The London Book Trades database exists as a Microsoft Access da database, and it's going to need to be converted to something more tractable, like MySQL. Actually, the information in Treadwell, Treadwell's database has been represented once already uh, as, as a wiki, um, but that wiki doesn't prove to be especially useful for the kind of work that Ian and Giles want to pursue. And paradoxically, it's easier for you or me to look at this record, and what you're seeing down below is, is the code. I've got my, my you know, web developer view there. So what you see up top, that's easier for us to read, but it's actually harder for a computer to address and, and do anything with. Uh, so with the assistance from colleagues at Oxford, uh, Giles and Ian arranged for the transcription of Arbor's transcript of the stationer's register into TEI XML. And so the XML encoding serves, in a sense, to translate the information that Arbor's transcript had encoded through its typographical features and put it into a form that can be processed by computers. It's a really, really clever thing that the Giles and Ian saw about this. I mean, Arbor's, Arbor's transcription is, is clever, and Giles and Ian saw potential to do something with it that would bring it into a, a new world. So that XML is going to have to be queried and transformed to extract structured records for each claim of copy, the date, the work, the people involved, and so on. And all of those sources are going to have to be linked together using sets of identifiers that would allow us, for example, to move from a publication listed in the ESTC for 1709 to an assertion of copy for that work in the stationer's register, and from there to a sense of the network of business connections surrounding that publication that might emerge by examining the information in the London Book Trades database. Really, really great project. I, I, I hope that, that this is going to work out. Unfortunately, uh, our, our first bid for funding under a relatively 
small-scale AHRC program was unsuccessful, but uh, we're hoping to have better luck next time out. Um, so this kind of project turns on the hunch that there are things we can learn about the history of the book by seeking out patterns that might be too large or too complicated uh, to take in without the assistance of computers. But for computers to be of assistance, we have to commit to building resources that can adapt to the needs we develop, resources that are open to programmatic querying. I mean, both the Defoe Attributions Database that I'm working on and the 1709 project uh, turned so far on repurposing downloaded extracts from the ESTC, but the plan is that the ESTC will in time have published sets of APIs that will allow developers to be querying current ESTC data directly. Um, we have to commit to building resources that can talk to one another, both by sticking to common open data formats and by deferring to common identifiers like ESTC numbers, but also uh, identifiers like those that OCLC has made available for people in the Virtual International Authority file, or VIOF, which attempts to reconcile and link the various national cataloging authority files together. Some of you have probably spent more time with VIOF than I have. From what I've seen, it's a really good start. There's a lot of work to do, and we need to get working. Right? It's not going to get better until we start fixing it. Um, so I don't want to minimize the challenges then. I, I don't want to make linked data sound like it's sort of magic fairy dust that will just throw at projects and it will happen easily. Building these kinds of resources is going to require time and hard work and lots and lots of proofreading. Uh, but these are the kinds of projects I think we need to be building in order to enable a new generation of book historical scholarship. So, I'm going to turn very briefly, I promise, in, in closing to one last sense of remediate that for me is perhaps the most important of all. Because I'd like to suggest that to take advantage of the opportunities that these other kinds of remediation of book history I've been discussing offer us, and to avoid some of their potential pitfalls, we need to do a fair amount of remedial education in bibliography and book history. And this is where the work of Rare Book School is so crucial. Right? Because it doesn't simply train the people who come here in how to do their own jobs better or how, in how to understand books better themselves, but it also enables them, us I should say, to go back to their home institutions, to go out into their fields and teach other people and to move questions of bibliography and book history insistently to the center. Right? Um, precisely because of the prevalence of the other kinds of remediation that I've mentioned, we have great opportunity to get students thinking about the history of books, and not just at universities with access to great special collections libraries. But to do so, we need to be able to pass on to them something of the knowledge of books that we've all come here to get for ourselves. So pale reflections of their originals, though they may be, these digital surrogates still provide something of a window into how books appeared in their original dress. Now, there's a difference between this uh, and this, and this, and certainly this. And we can see that difference even though these are not great representations, even though they all look a lot, uh, they look a lot alike on screen. They're all the same size, the same color. But as I suggested earlier, I think the ready availability of so many digital surrogates makes it more incumbent upon us to help our students develop the bibliographical and book historical sense to use those materials well. 
When I said I wasn't arguing that digital surrogates meant we could stop looking at material books, but rather precisely the opposite, I meant it. Right? The more we work with material books, live books was a phrase that Steve uh, used in class today, and I jotted that down. I love that. The more we work with live books, the better able we are to use digital representations of them intelligently and responsibly. So I want to teach my students to begin to see through that pale, low-fidelity surrogate and to start to imagine the live book from which it was derived. In part, I think that means teaching them enough bibliography to be able to pick up on the significant differences that are conveyed in formulae like these. Um, in part, it means helping them learn to use the digital tools we have well so that they can have as much information as possible to thicken their sense of what they're looking at. But I also think that we have to get students working with their hands as well as their brains uh, to develop an appreciation of the materiality of books. I mean, they can do the simple arithmetic to figure out how many fewer sheets of paper went into a duodecimo edition of a book than went into an octavo of the same text. But they also ought to be folding large sheets of paper to see how many different shapes a book could take. We don't all have access to great special collections departments, but even modest collections of old books and related materials can provide uh, a sensory, a tactile base from which students can then start to work imaginatively. And my students are, much to my chagrin, uh, really not all that impressed by Echo. It took us years to get it and lots of undignified groveling on my part. We finally got Echo and my students aren't all that impressed. I mean, they get that it's expensive, <laughs> but it's just a website. It's just a website to them. But, on the other hand, they're absolutely blown away by this very, very ordinary duodecimo in a pigskin binding with half the back strip gone that I picked up for about 25 bucks. Right? It, it blows their minds. And uh, the penny really begins to drop about this typesetting thing, when they hold even a single sort from this font of contemporary serif I picked up on eBay. So I do think that the future of book history is going to involve plenty of remediation into digital forms, both of the books whose history we're writing and uh, of, of the ways that we do that history. Um, but for me, the virtue of all of the exciting digital resources that we can see coming comes down to their capacity to help us grasp the past lives of books and how they fit into the lives of the people who produced and handled them. So thank you. There are any questions? I'd be happy to try and answer them. Or if I didn't say anything that you want to ask me about, we can just get started on the reception. So, uh, if there is one, is there a reception? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to promise more than. That. Yes, please. I'm, I'm trying to recall what I've heard the people who actually work for the ESTC say about that, because I'm, I'm, I'm a friend of the ESTC, but I don't actually work for them, so I have to be cautious. 
Um, I believe that actually they have in their files, they have many photographs of title pages, right? But they're often prohibited contractually from sharing those photographs. I'm talking about photographs of the binding. Oh, of the binding. Yeah, so I mean, you show it to the instructions yeah. for young ladies, and yes. you tell right away, well, that is an old, right, right, maybe right. original binding right. from them. There's no way to separate that out, so people go from institutions. I see what you mean. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Well, um, I think that... Um, my sense of it is where that could begin to happen um, would be in enriching the copy-specific uh, holding information um, that libraries uh, librarians are able to enter about copies in their holdings. And I, I believe if you go into, if you're using the English Short Title Catalog now even, and go into the holdings view, you will see some libraries have entered a few copy-specific notes. It, it, it's pretty sparse. Um, but I, I think that um, we could imagine a time when either a librarian could start entering information about whatever they think is remarkable, including bindings, or someone who's sitting at the library and has you know, paged a book from, from, from the cages and is looking at it could log on to the ESTC and start entering notes about that copy. I mean, so it's, um, I, I think the, the promise, but also the uncertainty of user curation is that we don't know yet what users want to put in there. We don't know yet everything that users want to put in there. Um, so it, it could happen, but I think it will be something that will have to be built uh, as, as we go. It's not going to sort of, we're not going to flip a switch and there will suddenly be binding information. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, precisely. If if the the links to surrogates are as we hope they will be attached to the the record for the holding, um, then sitting in your pajamas, you could look at the ESTC and perhaps move from a bibliographic record to a holding record to a, a digital facsimile. Um, libraries, I, I think that there are sets of emerging standards about best practices for digitization. I see lots of people doing bindings. Um, I don't know that that's universal. I, I would defer to, to librarians on, on that. You know, Katie? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that is, uh, I mean, that, that, that's a very good point. And I think there, there is a danger, and it's something, David, I, I think I, I recall from our conversations we were trying to be cognizant of mission creep, right? That, um, and, and so I think one, one part of the answer to this is that um, the ESTC becomes sort of a hub. Um, it's data will be queryable. So, so an interesting thing might be if you were passionately interested in bindings, for example, or anything else, you could build your own site that would start drawing on ESTC data and enrich it with your own without that necessarily being poured into the ESTC. One, one challenge that I think um, that we discussed, uh, especially in our more technical discussions um, about the project, and, and I think this is, this is just going to be one of those things the only thing we can do is try to keep an eye on it. We can't anticipate every eventuality. But the real um, sort of unknown here is the, what you want from a database is predictable, structured data. And when you start inviting users to enter data, you, there is a possibility that that data will be less structured than people might at first assume. Um, and there's also a concern that those data will not be even across the database. And one of the worst things you could do would be to draw conclusions about the state of book history based on an absence in the database, you know, something that just doesn't happen to be recorded for every copy. That's a problem already uh, in, in the ESTC. So you know, we're not creating a new problem there, but it's one that one thing we talked about was creating um, visualizations that would help users of the ESTC give them sort of a dashboard view to, to try to inform them about the, the quality, the state, the completeness of the data they were interrogating. So at least we wouldn't say stupid things um, without being warned. Right? Um, yeah, any stupid things I say are now left on me. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, that if Harvard is building a project, you don't need to duplicate effort. You need, you need these, these efforts to sort of mesh with one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, what what the ESTC we presume would be doing would be public publishing a specification. This is how our database is structured. Their database is structured. I get very protective of it. It's not mine. Uh, you know, th this is how ESTC data are structured. If you wish to query ESTC data, here's the syntax for doing so, and 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 sort of publishing that, and making it available to people. Um, not necessarily saying, and so your database needs to look like this. But saying instead, if you want to use our data, here's how you would do it. D does that answer your sort of? Brad? I hope you will. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, warm and fuzzy. Closer, right. Right? Yeah, of course, we're not any closer. No. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, is it possible, or, or could it be possible, I've been, I've been trying to think about this, like for the, the paper thing to be the surrogate for a, for a digital thing, so a paper surrogate for a, for a digital artifact. Um, like if, 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 like if you printed out your database? No, for, no, 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 oh, this is why it's so weird. So um, uh, something like an addition, you could only ever reassemble electronically. All of the copies, right? Uh -huh. So, any given copy that you're going to, like, if you're lucky, your library has several copies. 
chances are uh, the library has one copy. Uh, but uh, then you go to the SDC, you can actually see the thing, the real thing, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Which maybe you're you're interested in um, because it's because it's assembled right, through the SDC. Does this make this doesn't make sense? But, uh, uh, it's uh, starting it's kind to. It's for you to think a, a yeah. little harder uh, or a little more um, um, about uh, why it is we so quickly I don't know assume that the the digital thing surrogates the physical thing or yeah. vice versa. I, don't, I mean, I, it's it's. I'm not sure which way they should go around always. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem set to me that the physical thing is the, is mm -hmm. the real thing. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Because there's something realer or truer about the more general, uh, the more abstract thing. Does that make sense? I, I think so. I mean, do, do you mean, for example, by having access through something like a new ESTC, having access to a larger universe of exempla, we could actually more properly reconstruct a, a, a sense of the tr the addition rather than yeah, yeah, a bunch of copies? We never get to the addition. That, that's, okay. that's as close as we'll ever get to the addition, right? Unless we could fill the time. Yeah. Well, that would be a very provocative thing to suggest to people. I think it would. I mean, and, and uh, but I, I I do think. Right? I mean, the idea, the reason that people go around to various libraries is to try to build up their sense of this thing that they can't hold in their hands or put on their shelves. They, they want to get to that abstract thing, and I I, I think that um, uh, the, the digital surrogates could definitely play a role in that. I'm not sure I answered your your question. I'm sorry. We'll talk about it later. So there's a guy named Shelley, and he said, we must learn to imagine what we know. And it seems to me that Ben Pauley does that better than just about anybody else. Please join me in thanking him. Our conversation will continue in the reception area at Rare Book School. You are all most cordially invited.